Welcome to the Strength in Numbers podcast. Join us each week as we dive into the fascinating world of maths education, exploring innovative teaching pedagogies, sharing classroom success stories, and unraveling the mysteries behind those aha moments in our classroom. Before we get into this week's show, I just want to express my thanks to the sponsors of this podcast, Essential Assessment. Don't forget to check them out for all your assessment solutions. My name is Alan Dugan, and I'm really glad that you could join us this week for what will be a fantastic episode. Today, I'm joined by Mark Hansen. Mark has been involved in education for nearly two decades as a primary school teacher, master teacher of mathematics, and deputy principal. He's also the father of four children. He has a passion for learning and for igniting that passion in others, and is a regular presenter through conferences like QAMT, WMT, and his work has been published in education journals. He has two internationally published not-for-profit children's books promoting early mathematics concepts and beliefs. Mark, that's an impressive bio. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really interested and keen to hear about your passion. You, you clearly, through that bio, are passionate about maths education. Tell me more about what makes you passionate about maths education, Mark. Maths education and maths in particular is something that we're tested on every single day. Maths is a universal language. I don't want students to have the same experience I had. And reflecting on it now, I sense that perhaps my teachers moved from that concrete to abstract too quickly. I couldn't see the sense of what we were doing. I couldn't make sense of when we would need it. Uh, That's a common complaint sometimes. So I just try and make maths, I guess, fun for students. uh, That they, When we say maths time... You know, it's almost a litmus test. If we say maths time and their heads drop, um, alternatively, they, we say it's maths time, let's get your maths books out or let's get ready for maths or whatever, and their heads sort of light up. I guess I'm searching for the second option there. Wow, that, that sounds like a really interesting journey to go into teaching, to then find yourself not only passionate about it, but becoming a master teacher of mathematics. Tell us tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, I guess it's slightly ironic that in that initially um, I enjoyed teaching mathematics because I thought at the time that it was right or wrong, that, you know, okay, here's the, here's the formula, we'll work through that, I'll show the kids, I know what to do, so I'll just tell the kids what to do. I uh, spent a lot of time probably doing explicit teaching, uh, reflecting, uh, you know, many, many years ago, you know, we would have had uh, maths textbooks, so, you know, it would have just been about turning to this page and basically that all the students, there wasn't much differentiation happening in my classroom, that's for sure. Unfortunately, um, it was basically just working through the maths textbook, me showing them what to do and then them replicating it. So the gradual release model, which has merit. Um, but then I guess for whatever reason, and, and a couple of things fell my way, but I was selected as a master teacher and in Queensland at that time, I think they initially chose a few hundred of us. Uh, it was been about 2015, I believe. The vast majority, it was up to the principal to then decide what role a master teacher would play, either English or mathematics. The vast majority played an English role at that time. And I was fortunate that with my passion for mathematics, and I'd previously been a coach for about six months, that I was chosen to invest my time in mathematics, which was just an absolute blessing and an absolute privilege and you know one of the best jobs I've had because my weeks were basically spent communicating with teachers about mathematics, uh, running year-level meetings with our admin team at that time, coaching, modelling in mathematics, spending time 
networking and researching. A lot of t- um, spent the afternoons basically off class, you know, yeah, researching best practice in mathematics. And that's where my journey really sort of started to understanding in particular. I mean, if you'd asked me back then, what are the proficiency strengths in mathematics? I probably wouldn't have known what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, and now, obviously, we talk about, you know, understanding fluency, problem solving mathematics. And that was when I really started to delve into how do we get these students to be problem solving and math and, and reasoning, but also, yeah, showing their understanding. And those words that the, you know, the national curriculum talks of things like being confident, communicating, being creative, posing problems, all that stuff's very difficult to do if all you're doing is explicit teaching. Wow. So, so it sounds like the, the experience of going through the, the master teacher program and, and really getting a chance to, to focus wholly on maths in, in school really gave you a chance to really um, not just think about practice, but explore practice, um, try things out that worked and, and didn't work. Tell me a little bit about what you learned through that process in terms of the process of teaching maths in schools, what can, what can our, our listeners take away from, from your experience if you distill it down for us? Yeah, and you've hit the nail on the head. The challenge for a primary school teacher, and I guess it would apply to high school as well when you're teaching different subjects, is that you're, you're a general specialist. You know, you're a GP in a way. You know, we teach, there's eight KLAs. Uh, to spend that much time and to have the, you know, it was very fortuitous to be able to invest that much time just in one subject. And a subject which at that point I was really starting to enjoy teaching anyway was just a real blessing. Um, some of the things I guess that I that I was lucky enough to learn, and this comes from experts, you know, I've met Dan Meyer and people like that and worked with so many experts around Australia, which has just been very fortunate. But making it real wherever possible, and it's a bit of a cliche now, you know, make it real world or make it authentic, those sort of things. It's a, it's a cliche, but it's true. Um making sure that you meet the students when where they're at, what are their interests. So often we sort of think, okay, we'll teach them about this. If that doesn't link to what the students are actually interested in, you've lost probably half the class already. And probably concrete materials as well, Alan. So, you know, we've kind of got this concept that if you're using your fingers, that's bad. Or if you, sometimes if you, you know, by the time you get to year three, you shouldn't need counting blocks or you shouldn't need MABs or, you know, put the calculator away or whatever it is. And some of those have a place, sure. And there's definitely a place for students to know their number facts uh, to be able to apply, the, apply those. But um, yeah, so some of those things. And then I guess we can chat um, about the different types of teaching that um, engages students as well. So I guess part of my work then was about structuring the mathematical week or the mathematical block at the school at which I work and working with teachers around that. One of the things that if you listen to me long enough, I, I get passionate about talking about is the importance of a teacher toolbox, the importance of teachers having a strong pedagogical toolbox and knowing which pedagogy to select at the right time. And and I know in, in some conversations and interactions you and I have had um, in the lead up to this, you, you have really worked at equipping the teachers in your school to have access to a variety of pedagogies across the week. And in fact, you, you actually kind of call them out. Tell us a little bit about how that works and what that looks like in your school. Yeah, I think, um, and look, you probably know a lot more about this than me, the toolbox, that sounds really interesting. Um, but I guess for us at Sandy Strait, we often uh, think about um, in English, often if we're planning for an English, an English lesson or our English week, you know, we put aside time to do our reading groups. We put aside time to do our spelling groups. We do grammar. We do editing. We do 
you know, dictation or we do unit work and we have set times of the week in which we do that. And I guess one learning that I had, and I certainly did it myself, was that at maths time, I tended not to do that. My planning tended to be, okay, we're doing fractions this week. Um, let's look online or let's find some good fractions activities. And I was kind of at the mercy of whatever I found. Um, what I mean by that is it wasn't a pedagogical choice. It was more of a, a resource choice. Um, now I think I spend more time thinking about what's the pedagogy that's required for that. As I said before, with the four uh, proficiency strands of maths, if all we're doing is explicit teaching, um, there's a couple of strands there that we're probably missing and give it, not giving students the, the opportunity to showcase. Teachers, in my experience, generally speaking in mathematics, are pretty good at the explicit teaching. You know, I've, myself personally, I felt like I had that, um, I had that fairly well under control. It's the other strands that um, we might have hesitancy over, and we can't forget that for some teachers, they've got their own maths misconceptions as well, perhaps. They've got their own maths anxiety that they might have had at school. And so changing those habits can be quite tough uh, if, a, if a teacher's anxious about teaching maths or something like that. So some of the pedagogy that we utilize, uh, things like open-ended problems, problem solving, and not just problem solving as in, you know, three lollies and I got five more. Uh, someone else said to me that once that that was basically fluency in words, that that wasn't problem solving. And yeah, so different things like number talks, open-ended tasks, authentic tasks. Uh, then we've got things like interleaved activities. So making sure that students come back to activities that they've done previously so they don't forget those sort of things. And just, yeah, I guess authentic problem solving situations that require students to think. For listeners, Mark, you're not you're not saying that there's not a place for explicit teaching. And in fact, in the diagram that, that you shared with me before the show, there's actually explicit teaching planned in as a pedagogy almost every day of the week. Um, so you're advocating for a real intentionality around pedagogical planning and, and real consideration to be given to the pedagogy, right? Yes, correct. And I think like absolutely explicit teaching has got its place. As I said, number facts as well, obviously got their place. But what tends to happen, I've found, is that when teachers are busy, when, they're, when they've got a lot on their plate, what tends to go is that sort of creative mathematics, the sort of ability to you know come up with authentic problems or to look at open-ended tasks or to play some mathematical warm-ups, to play with playing cards or dice or doing things on miniature mini whiteboards or whatever it might be. That's the sort of thing that tends to fall by the wayside, and it's easier just to get um, students to do some, you know, sums off the board or to, to, to do some explicit teaching. So I guess what I'm promoting is that there's times of the week. Ideally, it would be responsive to student needs is the first thing I'd say. So, but without that, if, if that's not the case and we're not at that point just yet or if we're, we're still working on that, having some sort of structure similar to an English block will assist teachers in ensuring that they're still giving students that opportunity to work with those other two proficiency strands, um, not necessarily at the um, expense of explicit teaching, that that explicit teaching still occurs. And it can even fluctuate within a lesson, Alan. We might start off with a problem-solving task. The students might be struggling with it. We might think to ourselves as a responsive teacher, okay, they need some explicit teaching on this and we do that. Similarly, you could start with an explicit task. Students are demonstrating that quite well you then may, may flow into a problem-solving sort of lesson. Look, Mark, I, I completely agree with you. I think that it's, it's unhelpful when we think of, of pedagogies in a binary fashion necessarily, but it is helpful to think about 
or reflect upon our practice in terms of always making sure that there's a variety of pedagogies in practice. And I, and I want to I want to lean in to one of the the pedagogies, one of the elements, and just get you to talk a little bit about the role and place for interleaved practice or interleaved activities. My understanding of interleaved activities is basically that idea that um, I think it was Eden 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 House. I might be pronouncing that wrong came up with sort of this idea of the learning curve and the forgetting curve and things like that. You could look up that research perhaps or put a link in the in the podcast notes. But yeah. it was basically that idea that, and we know this to be true ourselves, if we do something, play, say playing guitar and we're playing every day and we get to a certain skill level and then we go three months or six months, it's going to take us, a, uh, without playing, it's going to take us a little bit to get back up to where we were. Uh, whereas if we just if we get to that level and then a week later have a quick practice, another week later have a quick practice, we tend not to forget those skills as much. And so I guess interleaved activities are that idea that if we, you know, some examples might be, you know, we're learning to tell the time or we're learning to, uh, you know, measurement or shape or whatever it might be, that if we go too long with it without that, that we're not teaching that as much or that students don't have the opportunity to show that, that that knowledge for students is going to take them a fair bit longer to recall. So interleaved activities is the chance for those students to show those skills on a sort of weekly basis. And it's great in the sense that it means that when we come to add more to that topic or concept later or in subsequent years, we don't have to go as far back in the in the journey in order to to start with students. We've got that interleave practice has kept it in their forefront. I'm in awe of your bio. You master teacher, deputy principal, that's that's enough. You've then got four kids. You're the author of some books. Tell us a little bit about these books. We've got Math for All. Um, and we've got your most recent one, My Garden is a Square. Tell us a little bit about them. Thanks, Alan. Well, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Certainly never set out to be an author or anything like that. The Math for All was the one published a couple of years ago. Honestly, I just had this idea that there's these maths misconceptions, you know, that we, that we, ha- that we all know exist, things like uh, that have proven to be untrue, you know, that girls aren't good at maths, for example, um, which, is, which is obviously untrue. Um, but things like... You know that maths is either right or wrong is another myth. Things that maths has to is all about speed, which again is not necessarily the case. In fact, some of the best mathematicians are those those who stick at problems and take their time. So I thought, okay, I was having trouble. It just occurred to me. It was actually in a dream. I sort of thought I could actually write a little a little book that in, that had these students at the start of their journey with these misconceptions with these beliefs and then they could go to school meet this teacher in this book and then realize okay those myths aren't true so it's kind of getting at i mean there's a lot of books out there about uh, mathematical content it was kind of trying to get at the mathematical beliefs which i know joe bowler has done a lot of work about building on the work of carol dweck but it was more just aimed at students, I guess, to try and help them understand and they could hopefully resonate with a character in the book and think, oh, okay, you know, yeah, I'm not the quickest at mathematics, but I can still be good at mathematics. So that book was then written. It's written in a sort of a, a rhyming sort of style. I got it illustrated, sent out a bunch of emails to a whole bunch of people and, yeah, about two months later, checked my junk mail and there was an email there from uh, Dr. Fabrice Germont. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah, big in the world of bilingualism. So he's had it internationally published. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. 
Tell me, Mark, what do you think the future of maths education is? What, what, what can we expect as we kind of glance down the road? Yeah, well, gee, um, I'm really interested in your answer on that one as well. Helen, you're probably more qualified than me to figure this out, but I guess we'd like more communication in maths classrooms. Uh, I'd like to be able to see, particularly between those students, uh, the world that they inhabit is quite removed, the world they inhabit in a classroom is quite removed from the real world. A guy called Michael Weimer said that that was, and that stuck with me, he said, the challenge for teachers is to bring the, the world into the classroom. So we can do that with our cell phones. I mean, so we've all got cell phones, we've all got cameras in our pocket. That idea I said before about those three-act tasks or problem-solving tasks, you might be at the shop, there might be two items that are similarly priced, working out which is a better value, take a photo, take that back to the students and have a discussion about which was the better value. The teachers would really spend a lot of time and think about the problem solving that they're doing in classrooms. Um, you know, Daniel Willingham said something along the lines of teachers are so eager to get to the problem, we don't devote sufficient time to developing the question. And I, I believe that's true. I think that Schools are becoming extremely inclusive at the moment, so ensuring that all students are having success, not just that idea of sort of teaching to the middle. And at the moment, you know, it's it's very easy to the, to think, okay, we've got to differentiate, we've got to cater for these students who are struggling, but getting those students who are gifted and talented or those students who are doing well, giving them the real opportunity to do that. And I guess the future of math education, you know, is is moving along because of the capacity of us. I mean, even what we're doing today, having a discussion to teachers about mathematics, having a discussion, talking about research, talking about what's the best practice. Uh, so I hope that it um, listens to research, I guess, as well, and that we see kids engaging in maths and enjoying it. What do you think? Yeah, Lou, Mark, I, I think that that's a question that we could we could spend the rest of today, tomorrow, and and next week talking about. I think for me. It changes often my focus and the answer to that question. My focus at the moment is is around accessibility. Uh, I think we have still an, a number of misconceptions to break down around mm, mm. whether you're a maths person or not. You know, we, we've got to the point in society where everyone believes that everyone should have the basic ability to read and to write mm. and to communicate. Um, through through language and but we're still at the point in maths where maths is not for everyone or I'm mm. not a maths person mm. or maths is just for smart people or 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 you know there's a whole host of those statements and for me there's there's some work that we need to do to break that down mm. but let's be clear everyone will go on to be a user of mathematics to some degree in their life and we want them to be competent users of mathematics uh, and and I think that starts even at home, uh, and in those really early years, there, there's work to do. And that's what you know. That's what excites me about the conversation about your books. That's what excites me about hearing about you know the master teacher program and that you've been through because it, it actually allows us to put some focus and spotlight on on maths from from that early age, which I think is is so fundamentally important. Something's just come to me about you know the future of maths education. The concrete materials and maths games, I think, is a is a good segue in, into students enjoying mathematics as well and breaking down that idea that, that maths isn't for everyone, that we can enjoy mathematics, uh, particularly in those early years to when those students are really developing those beliefs about mathematics. And I think as well it's about making 
maths visible. Yes. You, you know, the, the reality is you, you spoke about it, the, the idea of um, what's going on in the real world, what's yes. happening in the shops and so on. Young people engage with mathematics much more than they necessarily think in their, yes. their everyday life. Mark, I've got one last question. I asked this to everyone on the podcast as well. If, if you could sum up our conversation today and leave, leave our listeners with, with something to take away, what would that be from your perspective? I think finding out where your students are, in, are where they're interested. So bringing in student interest is a big passion of mine that we're not just talking to students about what our interests are, but if they've got an interest in sharks or interest in whatever it is, can we find the maths in that, that the students can see the need in it? And I think also, yeah, like I said, maths games and the capacity for students to be having a good conversation about, about mathematics in class. I guess having a think to ourselves, Who's doing the thinking in our, thinking in our maths classrooms? Who, where's the cognitive load lying? If the cognitive load is largely lying with the teacher, then you know that's an issue long term. We want our students to be thinking. Dan Bai said something along the lines of "be less helpful," um, you know, which sounds counterintuitive, but we do want the students to to work in their area of flow. You know that that they it's not too difficult for them, uh, but it's not too easy either. Excellent. Thank you. And Mark, if, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your work, what's the best, best way for them to connect with you? Oh, they can send me an email. Uh, at the moment, I'm just using Maths Class Renos. That's M-A-T-H-S Class, C-L-A-S-S, Renos, R-E-N-O-S, at Outlook.com. Excellent. And we'll make sure that, that they go in the show notes as well. So if you're looking to connect with Mark, um, we'll include that email address. And I'm absolutely happy to do that, Alan. That's something I love to do is just learning from other people as well. And thanks for the opportunity today. Excellent. Well, Mark, I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for, for joining us today. I want to thank you for, for sharing your expertise with, with us. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I have no doubt that our listeners have too. Listeners, I really encourage you to continue the conversation. Uh, use the, the hashtag Strength in Numbers on Facebook, on Twitter. Really excited about this podcast series. I want to thank um, our sponsors, Essential Assessment, uh, for making it possible. Uh, make sure you check them out. And um, I look forward to you joining us next week on the Strength in Numbers podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.